Today we're going to continue on with our series in Romans, and hopefully you've turned there to chapter 2. We're going to be landing in the first 11 verses and looking in this portion of Scripture. Um, hopefully we'll realize uh, um, who this righteous judge is and how God judges. In this portion of Scripture, it's very interesting too how Paul takes the Jewish and Gentile communities and lets them know what's going on within this group called Christians. For centuries, a clear distinction had been maintained between these two different communities, the Jewish and Gentile communities. The Jews saw the Gentiles as pagans, separate and cut off from God. The Jews were the chosen people of God, benefactors of His covenant. But Christianity forced these two distinct groups together. And since early Christianity has what was seen as a branch of Judaism, the Jewish people felt compelled to instruct these Gentile converts in the proper observance of their covenant law with God, the do's and don'ts, the in and outs of, of this covenant. And so doing this, the, the Jews held a strong assumption that they were spiritually pure in comparison to those Gentiles. But not so according to Paul. Both groups stand guilty before God, who does not show favoritism. Unless we all repent, we will face God's wrath. Simple as that. In the context of Paul's letter to the Romans is found in the first chapter, verses 14 and 15. It says, I am obligated both to, to Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish, that is why I am so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are at Rome. See, Rome was this cosmopolitan city, as you are well aware. The Roman Empire strove to maintain safe travel on the main roads with the empire, especially within the interior. And the Romans knew that safe travel promoted trade, which led to a very strong economy. This, coupled with the plain fact that Rome was the empire's capital, drew people to travel to Rome and visit there. And so it made for a prime opportunity to bring the gospel, as many people would be coming through that area. The beginnings of Christianity in Rome really aren't clear. The tradition that Peter began or was ever associated with the church in Rome is actually kind of doubtful. Peter was the apostle to the Jews, in A.D. 49, the Jews were expelled from Rome, and after Emperor Claudius died in A.D. 54, the Jews were allowed to return. So this, this gap of Jewish presence in Rome during these years makes Peter's affiliation with the church kind of unlikely in that way. Most likely, Christianity was taken to Rome as the Jewish believers at Pentecost returned home to Rome or traveled to the great city. When the Jews were expelled, Christianity moved away from the synagogue to the house church model. And since Gentile Christians were able to remain in Rome, the Roman church became predominantly Gentile and remained so even after the return of the Jews. But the fluid nature of the city created the most diverse Christian population within the early church. A lot of different kinds of people there. And Paul wrote to the Roman church not because of its supremacy, but because of its diversity while Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles, his gospel was not for the Gentile at the exclusion of the Jew. 
Paul preached that the Gentile was now an equal heir with the Jew in the promise of God's salvation. Rome, with its mixture of, of races and classes, was the perfect arena for Paul's message. He was convinced that the gospel applied to all people, both the promise of salvation and the warning of judgment. This conviction is well illustrated by these first 11 verses in chapter 2 that we'll be looking at. Now, humans do not like to admit guilt. We don't. We are more likely to make excuses than confess. Who broke the vase? Uh, It wasn't my fault. The ball hit it, not me. We deny the act or we claim ignorance. Who broke the vase? I don't know. In some cases, we attempt to justify our actions by comparing them with others more notorious than ourselves. Who broke the vase? Well, I did, but it's not like I committed murder or something like that. There are even some who excuse their behavior by claiming a relationship with God that exempts them from all guilt. Who broke the vase? I did, but I'm not perfect. I'm just forgiven by God, and you should forgive me too. But despite, despite our assumptions, God holds us responsible for our own sins. The message today should be a sobering reminder of that fact. If we fail to maintain a truthful and accurate assessment of our spiritual state, it can result in, 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 in falling under God's wrath and His judgment. We need to have a truthful and accurate assessment of our spiritual state. So, let's discover more about God's judgment, what it's based upon, and how we should respond as followers of Jesus. So if you haven't turned yet to Romans chapter 2, you should be there by now. Let's look at the first four verses. And here we can see that God's judgment is based on truth. God's judgment is based on truth. Chapter 2, verse 1. You, therefore, have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. For at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself, because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? We'll end there at verse 4. There's a story about a father who confronted his son about a broken window. He said, I want an explanation and I want the truth. And the father demanded all this. And the boy replied, make up your mind, dad. (laughs) Can't have both. Judgment and truth can be conflicting. Usually a judge attempts to determine the truth in the matter so proper judgment can be made. The guilty party attempts to mask the truth to avoid judgment. This process becomes all the more confusing in light of today's scripture that we're reading here since the judges are part of the guilty party. Paul addressed the hypocrisy of the Jews in Rome in response to their expressed judgment against Christians. Though they criticized Christians by the law, the Jews were guilty of the same infractions. Their judgments implied a lifestyle far different than the one Paul revealed. 
since they were guilty of what they condemned in the Gentiles, they condemned themselves as well. If it was wrong for the Gentile, it was wrong for the Jew. No amount of excuse could change any of that. Judgment assumes a level of innocence. Otherwise, it all becomes a mockery. We expect our judges to be morally and ethically above those who come before them. This is difficult in regard to spiritual judgment. We are all guilty before God. So the level of innocence that is needed to exercise judgment just isn't present. It's not there. Any accusation is self-incriminating. Our judgment is hypocritical and, and it's false. Jesus addressed this very issue in Matthew chapter 7 in the first five verses. He says, Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite! First take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. God, in, because of His purity, pronounces sentence upon us. His judgment is always true. And the tension of Jew and Gentile may not be an issue today. Not likely. But the challenge of judging others for their sins while ignoring our own is still widespread. Martin Luther <clears throat> taught that judging others was a sin committed by non-Christians. To him, the credibility of Christians were found in the fact they judged themselves for their wrongs while overlooking the faults of others. And in contrast, the unrighteous look for the good within themselves and the sin in others. Whether we ever admit our own need for grace, God will judge us in truth, and that truth will find us all guilty. Our only remedy is to place ourselves before God through confession, realizing while our infractions may differ from others, the guilt before God is all the same. Yet there is a difference between discernment and judgment. Too often I hear the phrase, don't judge me. Quit judging me. You can't judge me. I hear that a lot, and it's misused a lot. <clears throat> we are not allowed to condemn others for their sinful acts. But we can make a decision of what is not sinful, and what is sinful. We must determine the ethical and moral substance of behaviors so we know what is correct. Determining what is right or wrong is discernment. Condemning a person for his or her actions, that's judgment. Please know the difference between the two. We show, we show contempt for the riches of God's kindness and His tolerance and patience by assuming on God's kindness, thinking, I'll repent tomorrow. God's a God of grace. I'll repent tomorrow. Or I'll confess, even though I know I'm going to do this again, I'll be covered by God's grace. We need to realize that God's kindness leads us to repentance. If God sometimes appears to allow sin to continue unchecked, we cannot take that as an excuse for continuing to sin. He calls us not only to receive love, but to return it as well. God seeks from His people more than mere ex external conformity with a, with a set of standards. 
as important as that may be. God is pleased only with humble repentance that leads to heart loyalty. How are you towards God in your heart? God's judgment is based on truth. God's judgment is also based upon what we have done. Look with me in verses 5 through 8 of Romans 2. But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when His righteous judgment will be revealed. God will repay each person according to what they have done. To those who, who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, He will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. We'll stop there. Anyone familiar with Paul's teachings may be surprised by what he wrote in this section. Paul, the promoter of salvation by faith, warned that one's actions play an influential part in salvation. And true, his initial accusation appeared to condemn those those Jews who had refused to accept this saving grace. It's because their hearts were stubborn and unrepentant that God's wrath was being stored against them, as you see in verse 5. The distinction is expressed in verses 7 and 8. Those who persist in doing good while seeking immortality will experience eternal life. But those who who are self-serving, who reject God's truth and pursue evil, will experience His wrath. Is this merely a distinction between the saved and unsaved? Not necessarily. And if it's not a distinction between the saved and unsaved, the question arises, well, so how much can a Christian sin before their salvation is threatened? Where is that line? How much can we do? This kind of question might come from a pure and honest curiosity. I'll, I'll give that, grant that. But there are those who want to know the boundaries for, their, for security reasons. They want to make sure that they have some boundaries there. But sometimes there are those who want to see how far they can push those boundaries. How close can I get to the edge without falling off? Most often that kind of question indicates the commitment level one would have as a follower of Jesus. Instead of wondering how bad you can be and still be okay, why not pursue and persist in doing good? Why not pursue God? Nevertheless, I think a line can illustrate the answer to the question, how much can a Christian sin before the salvation is threatened? If you, if you envision a line, and at one end are those who would say, there is no freedom, any willful act, however slight, immediately places us in fear of God's wrath. Watch out. Mind your P's and Q's, right? Don't step out of line. God's going to zap you. At the other end of the line are those who believe no matter what we do, God's grace still covers us. We are eternally secure in our salvation. We can be here on Sundays and get as close to God as we want that way, and then through the weekdays we can act like something else and do whatever we want to do, because we're saved by grace. We, as, we, as, as with most of these extremes, both sides, neither one really is accurate. 
The answer lies in between those two. The Apostle Paul taught that grace gives us latitude, but never a license. In Romans chapter 5, verse 20, on into verse, uh, chapter 6, verse 2, he says, The law was brought in so that the trespass might increase, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more, so that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? So one infraction may not result in our eternal condemnation, but it is still sin that must be atoned for. So we cannot continue in sin without thought of its consequences. Some of you aged 50 and older remember, might remember a made-for-TV movie entitled The Boy in the Plastic Bubble. You remember that one? Yeah, John Travolta played in that. He was the, the young adult, the boy. The movie based upon the true life story of a boy named David Vetter, who was born in 1971 with uh, SCID, a severe combined immunodeficiency. Big old gigantic word, basically to say he could not live out in the environment. He could not even be exposed to any of this. He had to be enclosed in a, in a bubble, if you will, and a sterile, with sterile you know, air that everything was sterilized that came through into that area as well. There, there are pictures, actually, and, and not just the movie, of course, but there's pictures of actual David Vedder as a young kid where they were giving him toys, and those things had to be placed in a little area uh, with some chemicals to sterilize it, and then for four hours they had to sit there. And then for another week, they had to then sit in another area to allow it to, uh, all those chemicals and stuff to evaporate and, and dissipate, and then he could have those things. Now, they went through a lot. I mean, think about a, a baby, dealing with a baby, diapers had to be sterilized. All the stuff that came into that area had to be sterilized, totally. So this child, David Vedder, born with this deficiency, um, had to live a life within this bubble. Now, certain people have been born with compromised immune systems, making them easy prey for the bacteria and viruses within our environment. And to allow these individuals some freedom, a type of ecosystem is created inside a large plastic bubble that allows them to walk outside without coming in contact with the environment. In the same way, grace is a spiritual bubble surrounding us. It gives us a measure of freedom where we can live, but it is still possible if the person insists to penetrate the bubble and be exposed to the destruction beyond. How easily the bubble is broken depends on the intentions of one's heart. How many times? How many times? What's the intention? Grace enables believers to live with a certain amount of freedom in their relationship with God so as not to lose our salvation with every infraction. Sin, once known, needs to be confessed, but grace protects our salvation. Otherwise, we develop a type of righteousness by works, gaining heaven by what we can do. What can burst this bubble of grace is willful, known, unrepented sin. 
which moves us outside the gracious protection of God. The way we can protect this grace bubble is by immediately confessing and repenting of any known sin. That's why it's so important as we come to times like this, where you are able to finally set aside stuff, if you haven't throughout the week, set aside stuff to be able to find God, seek Him, be before Him, and, and ask, how are we doing? And I trust that's a, that's a daily thing you do. But at least you have a, a community time to be able to do that. And allow the Holy Spirit to speak to your heart. And when the Holy Spirit does, and points something out in your life that isn't quite lining up with what God wants you to do, showing you and reminding you of Scripture that speaks against what you are doing or thinking, we need to respond. We need to respond in obedience and agree, yes, you're right, this is wrong. I need your forgiveness. I need to turn away from that. That's why we have opportunities coming to the altar to be able to pray. And I got to say that if we get too preoccupied with other people, what other people think, then we're in danger of, of, of not realizing that it's not what other people think, it's what God thinks. It's us before God. Well, God's judgment is based on truth. It's also based on what we have done. And also, thirdly and finally, God's judgment is equal toward all people. It's impartial. Equal toward all people. Verses 9 through 11, Romans 2. It says, There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. But glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For God does not show favoritism. The United States Lady Justice is depicted as a blindfolded woman holding a balanced scale. You've seen pictures of it. To be fair, justice must be impartial and equal toward all. But in some situations, the blindfold slips a bit. And human justice can be tainted. You've seen it. You probably witnessed it yourself. But where a judicial system may fail, God's judgment is always equal toward all. The Jews of Paul's day had trouble understanding God's view of equality among people. To them, their participation in the covenant between God and Moses gave them superior status. But Paul taught this distinction would mean nothing in relation to God's judgment. Jews would, Jews would stand with the Gentiles because everyone is on level ground before God. Now, I don't think we would claim the Mosaic Covenant to argue in favor of God's special treatment. But some believe that because they have experienced salvation, they no longer are liable for their actions. They believe since God has adopted them as children, He can never deny the relationship. They will always be His children no matter what. Judgment will only fall on the unsaved. But we will be judged for our actions, whether a child of God or not. Like the Jews of Paul's day, we are mistaken if we believe a decision once made with God exempts us from all future actions. We still have a responsibility towards sin. If anything, 
Being a child of God should heighten our sensitivity, not dull it. Grace may give us latitude in life, but it should never be construed as a license to sin. Those believing otherwise, like the Jews in the Bible, are in for a dreadful surprise. <laughs> so, Pastor Jim, is it possible then, are you telling me, that it's possible for a person to lose his or her salvation? Yeah. Yeah, it is possible. But it's not as easy as some suggest, nor as difficult as others believe. And I don't have uh, enough time to go through all that. That's going to be a whole different thing. And Zach's going, rats, oh, man. <laughs> but read up on Hebrews chapter 6, the first six verses, as well as chapter 10, verses 26 through 31. And I'll let you do your own study on those. Allow you to come to your own conclusion with that. Really, in, like, like that, those boundaries, we really need to see how close we can get to God, how close we can get in our relationship with Jesus, not how far away we can get and still be okay. What's the intention of the heart? We need to realize that that relationship with Jesus needs to be continually fed, continually worked on, one that you would get close to Him no matter what. If you equate it to a marriage, would you really try to see how much you can do and still have your marriage go, go, go well? It doesn't make sense. Neither does it make sense to do the same thing in our relationship with Jesus. Just because we have the salvation, just because we've been saved by grace, doesn't mean that we can go ahead and live like something else through the week and, and know that we're, we're going to be fine. What's the intention? What's the heart? What kind of follower of Jesus are you? I'm going to bring the band up. We're going to, we're going to um, play a few songs here. And as they come up, a couple things I just want to remind you of. <clears throat> Again, first of all, God's judgment is based upon truth, based upon our actions, what we do, and it's also impartial. It's equality given to all. So consider your relationship with others and with God. What contradictions are there between the way you view others and the way you want God to see you? Is there a difference in there somewhere? What sins are you likely to condemn in others that you excuse in yourself? Now, so, so sometimes what happens is that we get so upset about the sin in other people, can't believe that they're doing these things, and we get all riled up about it because possibly we might be dealing with the same stuff in our own lives, maybe that we haven't actually allowed God to deal with yet. Take a few minutes just to quiet your heart. I'll give you a couple minutes here. Just quiet your heart before God. Open up your mind to the possible challenges God might want to reveal to you regarding your relationship with Him. Be willing to embrace His probing so you can make confession. We come to this moment and we come to a message from God and His Word and we need to be able to come to a decision. What do we believe? Do we need help? Are we 
Are we okay? Are we continuing through our relationship with Christ and getting stronger? Great. But if the Holy Spirit is speaking to you about some things, you need to take care of it. Bring it before God. We need to be willing to embrace His probing so we can make confession. Accept His grace and a fresh measure of spiritual power to be the authentic and vibrant Christian God wants you to be. He wants you to be living the abundant life. Not so abundant when we're always living a double life. Live for Him. Give it all to Him. Surrender to God your life. I invite you to take some time in praying. And as you do, again, just trust that God knows what He's doing. There's something that He's bringing up in your life that needs to be taken care of. Give it over to God. Agree and act in obedience to what He's prompting you in. Continue to strengthen that relationship and don't let anything come between you and Him. Don't let Satan get a foothold. Let's take a moment right now and just pray silently. And then the worship team will lead us in, in song.